Hello, ladies and germs, and welcome to another scintillating episode of Never Stay Dead. I'm clearly the top host, Matt, here with my co-host. Damien, and I am so glad we're being scintillated once again. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, this time we are discussing the launch of J. Michael Straczynski's run on the amazing spider-man which transpired during volume two of the run issues 30 through 35 did i get that right yes you did doing that off raw memory all right and yes. uh, um does this story arc have a name i guess i didn't notice the trade is called coming home coming home okay which is doesn't tell you anything about what the story is about then <laughs> Right, and you have no history with this this particular chunk. era of Spider-Man. No, I think I read yeah. one issue of the Straczynski um, Romita Jr. run, and I remember liking the art a lot and thinking, "Oh, I should get more of these comics." But that was during my period of of not paying very close attention, especially to Marvel and DC. Okay. I think this was this two thousand and one. Yes, this is 2001. And what's so just to talk around this a little bit, um, I actually I got this run as a way to kind of catch up because I had subscribed to Spider-Man for the first time to like get in the mail from Marvel, oh. though technically. Um, so what year was, what that, was that that you were NYC? subscribing to Marvel? 2001. 2001. OK. So I got the issue that follows exactly after this trade, which wow. is the somewhat infamous 9-11 issue. Yeah, that's a weird issue for you to start your subscription on. <laughs> I thought something was wrong because I get this thing. And keep in mind, the subscriptions come out after months after sometimes everything and with everything it was in this case. And I, you know... I was looking forward to my first issue of Spider-Man and I get this black cover and I'm looking at it like, did I get a misprint? Did something happen? And no, it's, it's this whole thing about 9-11. It's been a few months since 9-11 transpired and I had no idea this was coming and that really hit me. Um, so that was something, but I ended up getting the trade to read up beforehand, which was very helpful, you know, for the stuff that followed and whatnot. And I've read this trade more times than I've read pretty much any other comic. There's a few exceptions, but so, it's up there So for you me. read this trade pretty early in your Spider-Man reading career. All relative, yeah. And, I mean... Well, yeah. so what year did you start? What Your first Spider-Man was before all this, I suppose. So this was... When you decided to subscribe to Spider-Man. Right. So, I mean, I'd been picking up random issues of Spider-Man and trying to pick up stories that I could that Wizard had deemed uh, more noteworthy. Ah, okay. I had this magazine that was like a Spider-Man special, and they had like the 50 best Spider-Man stories. And a lot of them were ones I could try to get in trade, or I actually went back and picked up the uh, Nothing Can Stop the Juggernaut relatively cheap uh before that all exploded and is the nothing can stop the juggernaut is that the earlier jrjr run that's um another 
That's a Stern run. I cannot recall who did the I art. I think Roger. I think when Roger Stern did that Juggernaut story, I didn't know what it was called. I I remember reading it when it came out. That was back when I okay. still read Spider Man. Um, yeah. I'm pretty sure it was J.R.J.R. doing the art then, but his art was entirely different than it is now. Perhaps we haven't mentioned yet that this is Michael Straczynski, Michael J. Straczynski, or J. Michael Straczynski and John Romita Jr. Um, mm-hmm. And Scott Hanna. And Scott Hanna, who does a very good job on the inking, I think. Yeah. Um, so, and this is kind of, this is like the new J.R.J.R. <laughs> when he's not at yes. all like his father and is something completely different. Become but himself, in- I guess, as we now know him. What's interesting to me now is I've gone back and read prior to this, and J.R.J.R. is on the book for a good chunk before this with Jenkins writing, uh-huh. and he's doing the same art. Same style. So he's had this style for yeah. a while. Yeah, the art team was here, and they changed writers because uh, J. Michael Straczynski was this big get. So you can actually tell, because the arc that precedes this, there's two issues in Amazing, and then it goes to Peter Parker's Spider-Man, which was the sister book at the time, and then, like, an annual. And they, like, they, like, cram it, like, something happened there. Like, they were getting this in front of people as fast as they could. So this was, this is one of those weird moments where they have a celebrity to write, and they're making a big deal about it. So do you know... J. Michael Straczynski's, because I don't know his history in comics. Was this very early in his sure. comic book writing? Because um, for a while he was writing a lot of comics for Marvel and DC. Uh, yeah. Unlike other celebrities coming in, um, I mean, this is post-Babylon 5. Right. Um, which had some comic tie-ins. I don't know if he was really involved with that, yeah. but I'm sure for he had a For those who are not it. science fiction nerds, J. Michael Straczynski was the creator, producer, main writer of the five seasons of Babylon five, um, which was a huge sort of cult science fiction hit. Yeah, it's pretty good. He also was involved Uh, in various other shows. The one I know he was involved in some revival of the, um, twilight zone, I believe. Yeah. Um, yeah. So he had a lot of Hollywood credentials as a writer, um, and producer. And in comics, he had done things like Rising Stars by this point, um, and um, Midnight Suns, and so, and I believe a couple other smaller projects. And so he, you know, he he's gone through his paces with comics as well. Like at that point, if you had those kinds of hits, I don't know if Marvel would normally put you up for Spider-Man, but I think Marvel would be looking at you potentially as a writer with that kind of successful especially because keep in mind this is before like images the way it is now like having those successful like third-party comics and having a body of that kind of work that would be sold at comic shops at that point pretty big deal i have to say i would not because i associated him with science fiction and fantasy i wouldn't have immediately thought of spider-man for him so when i first heard he was on spider-man i was a little surprised but he seems seems to have a real love for Spider-Man, I would guess, from what I've seen here. Yeah, he he does, and I think it's... Uh, this is one of the most celebrated Spider-Man runs of all time, and that celebration stops 
immediately as J.R.R. J.R. leaves the book and then becomes some of the most controversial books oh, really? of the run. Yeah, well, one more day, the other, um, the Civil War bit. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of interesting stuff that J. Michael Straczynski's spoken out against and how much of it's editorial and it's an interesting, but this is a beloved story. Well, then I'm glad you've got me to read it. Um, you want to do your quick summary of the basics of the story before we discuss it in depth? Yeah, so Spider-Man is kind of churning a new leaf. Uh, Mary Jane has just reappeared from being kidnapped, um, presumed dead for a while. Another story. And uh, he's feeling a new lease on life. Along with that, he's taking on a new job and he's trying out becoming a school teacher back where at the school where he used to get beat up by Flash and all that, you know, back to the roots. Uh, meanwhile, there's this mysterious new figure, Ezekiel, who is questioning things about his Spider-Man-ness that he's never really thought about before. And surprisingly, Ezekiel seems to have similar powers. Yes. Which, this is, and keep in mind, this is before Miles, this is before Spider-Verse right. or anything. The idea of someone coming up with spider powers is pretty cool. The only and other Ezekiel's person who had done that at this point age, was a clone. been around a long time with these powers not revealed to the world. Yeah. And, uh, but he he's warns Peter that this entity is hunting him and that it's going to be the fight of his life to survive. And there you go. I mean, that's I think that's the best way to sum it up. Is that good? Oh, you want to just sum up the first issue or, or sort of the... Well, well, that's more than the first issue. I mean, that's right. more or less the arc, not, not summing up the conclusion. But this entity well. is like a vampire uh, energy vampire who only you, you goes after superheroes and particularly ones that are to totemic of animals i guess right which is different from where they rewrite it with uh, spider-verse later which more people might be familiar with if they're listening him at this point he yeah totemic powers um and uh yeah do you want to back up and maybe talk more in detail about some of the well, I, sorry, I'm being pushy, but I just want to, I want the summary to go a little further. The, um, the vampiric guy, what's his name? Uh, Morbius? Morland. No, that's a different vampire. Mobius. He's Mobius. He, he, he's, he has a, uh, a servant. Yeah. And he, what is his name? barely matters but you said it a moment ago but i spoke over you, Could you... no no morland is morland yeah is the vampire's name well yeah. vampire-esque character yeah and it, and it well maybe we shouldn't spoil the end yet but um yeah there's a lot of interesting things going on because the other thing the other thing or maybe you mentioned it and i spaced it out is that uh, peter parker decides to become a teacher at his old school Mm -hmm. Which has become kind of the, well, uh, kind of the cliche of the bad inner city school that is that where no one cares and there's no real learning going on. That's sort of I thing. mean, 
it's what it's right in the middle of Queens. Um, I don't know if that's, I mean, it is definitely a trope. It is that sort of thing, but I mean, it feels about right here. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. Um, I did student teach at some elementary schools that were in low income areas, but they weren't in New York city. Um, but they weren't as rough as what he portrays there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and that's a whole issue that we can get into. <laughs> and I only dealt with uh, elementary school. Yeah. For me, I just constantly was loving the artwork. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, even though I know Straczynski's the superstar, it, for me personally, J.R.J.R. was the superstar here. J.R.J.R. is my favorite Spider-Man artist. So, And at some point feel, in yeah. the 2000s, he was considered the top artist at Marvel. I don't know if he already was or is this is what built his reputation. I mean, I think being on this book catapulted him to the very tip top. It's just, it doesn't stand out the way like Jim Lee was on X-Men or anything, well, no, right? Not like, that big, it's... But, but this was at a time when comics were not selling in large numbers and stuff. So you couldn't have that G, uh, Jim Lee kind of effect. We're starting to see the bump from movies, though. Like, this was the era, this was around the era of the new X-Men that Grant Morrison did. Uh -huh. So... But this was the period yeah. where Marvel was trying to pull itself out of the hole by getting these celebrity writers to come to them. And I guess it worked. I mean, it did pull Marvel out of the hole. Yeah, I mean, as far as the financial thing, that had more to do with the stuff outside of comics. But I mean, as far as creatively and I mean, there had to be something here because good comics and these things did sell. I actually think the move to a trades was a big part of what made a lot of the money for them too because this is the era that they really started collecting everything Probably, in trades. Yeah, the beginning of trades becoming a regular part of reading. I mean, it was this certainly is, an era where I started to move to trades. And this is like a step right after Ultimate started. So this was a time when Amazing Spider-Man was allowed to almost be a little more adult because they had Teen Peter Parker, you know, the other universe. So what do you think about Ezekiel? This, uh, well, he's not a billionaire, but is some extremely rich guy who has powers like Spider-Man. Isn't he a billionaire? I mean, he's filthy rich. It's like a half a billion or something. They actually state oh, the number I mean, at some point. <laughs> In this was a few years ago, too. If any billionaires get. <laughs> yeah, that's... All right. Um, yeah, I mean... I think he's a very compelling character. I like him a lot more than what they do with other spider characters later. This, because I mean, think about it. Like we only have five issues in this trade, but by the end of it, like I feel like he's a consequential part of the fabric of everything. The one thing that weirds me out is he speaks a lot to the spiritual side of Spider-Man, and the question he poses by the end of this first issue is basically the idea of, you know, are your powers mystic? And Spider-Man's like, no, you know, it was a radiated Spider-Man bit me. And he basically is saying, well, was it a Spider-Man to give you these powers and the radiation happened to kill it? Or was it the radiation that enabled it to give you the powers? Right. Which kind of has a potential to make Spider-Man a more mystic character. And... Uh, it's a it's very funny good because question. I'm... I mean, we never question the old 
Stan Lee trope of you get something radioactive yeah. happens to you and then you get powers. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting. Um, and I, I mean, not to spell anything, it, it, it kind of almost doesn't matter either way, though. <laughs> and it was crazy because I um after I mean, I've had this trade for years, but recently in my quest to collect everything Spider-Man, or at least mainstream, I got the actual issues for this and i was looking through the the you write in uh, the letter page letter page i don't know why i could not. it's late at night folks for those listening to this later it's past midnight mass time so people were floored by this question they just basically every every letter they printed was about like people trying to grapple and deal with this this question which is interesting i've never seen a letter page that had that kind of uniform of response to basically a line in a comic well because people had for years just sort of accepted to so suddenly have that whole ordering of the meaning of his powers even though as you say it doesn't really matter he has the powers one way or another but the whole meaning right. of his powers sort of be shifted in a completely different direction that none of us ever thought about, but it was sitting there right in front of us the whole time. And it's fun. It's clever. Um, what's really cool about it is I've heard a lot of people speak to it as a retcon. And I'm like, it's not a retcon. It's just a really fun reframing. It doesn't change a lick of anything that came before it. But it does, it gives Peter Parker a new way to sort of have some depth and stuff to think about. Well, yeah, and as this run continues, we play with more Mystic, which means a lot of Doctor Strange appearances, which is cool. Ah, I didn't know that. More Doctor Strange in future issues beyond this arc. Um, Does, I can't resist but ask, I assume Ezekiel returns at some point. Mm -hmm. Yes. What but what concerned me about Ezekiel is when he first shows up, he's like the spiritual guru, guru it seems. But then he turns out to be, by the end of the story, I mean, it was a very, a very interesting twist. He's basically inferior to Spider-Man because he did not make good use of his powers, even though he comes off as the wise person who knows all about the powers better than Parker does. Well, uh, and, and, and maybe he kind of seems to want to be more like Spider-Man now that he's met Peter. Well, so there's a few factors at play there, right? So I feel like this comes up more later in the story, though. Right. I'm jumping um, around. I'm sorry. I'm focusing on yeah. the character rather than the story. Yeah, that's fine. So uh, Ezekiel does eventually be shown to be less powerful than Peter, but that's more into how he gets his powers, which is interesting because we as readers are given insight into that, whereas Peter isn't in this story, where basically Ezekiel goes to an Aztec tomb and goes through some blood ritual in order to gain the powers through the Asani side of things. Um, Yeah, my focus wasn't just on the fact that he was less powerful, but also on the fact that he was less, in a sense, well, he's, he's less... less morally and spiritually advanced than Peter Parker. Yeah, he's not a hero. He's not he's a hero. Uh... He's not someone 
who um, takes on responsibility. <laughs> um, he was a billionaire seeking power. Right. Or he, pay, mentions he pays his employees well and stuff like that. Yeah. So he's a benevolent million, uh, multimillionaire, but he's not really making any personal sacrifices. And I think it's interesting because you see this route of someone who's doing swell but not giving up. But I mean, Peter is... I, Peter is selfless. I mean, right. at times functionally retarded with money, which bothers me. But that's not really here. And at this point, too, like I, I think it's no mistake that Peter's making himself a teacher to make it so that even his profession is more... right. Um, noble a teacher in a school that most teachers don't want to work in right and so we're now looking at oh speaking of the teacher bit the issue where peter actually becomes a teacher which is something uh, there's a beat that happens in the first issue with aunt may and peter where aunt may mentions that like the school's looking for teachers and that he should consider being a substitute basically um, and there's this beat there with Peter spacing out and then kind of tuning back in and Aunt right. May kind of repeating what she's saying, but slightly different. Was that and the first issue? I'm pretty sure it is. But may, what's in what issue might not be. It's, it's hard to know, actually. It's all, even though I just read it last night, I, I can't remember. There it is. It's, it's the, the second issue. Of, I apologize. Issue 31. Yeah. Um, it's just this beat with the idea of Peter being kind of a space cadet half the time, which yeah. makes so much sense for the character, but it's never really been portrayed before, but it fits. And we also get this little bit of, as much as I love how J. Michael Straczynski writes Peter and all the other characters, he's even stated in this interview, his favorite characters to write were Mary Jane and Aunt May. And his Aunt May is a character I wish more people would push to emulate further because she's shrewd, she's insightful, she pushes Peter in different ways, and she has a lot of cool little things to say. And She's not the Aunt May from the Spider-Mans I used to read. <laughs> yeah, no, she's not the Stan Lee. She's kind of Aunt May. She's a much more shrewd character and i think it makes for such a better book uh -huh. i don't know what did you think of aunt may here because you are used to more of the uh doddering old yeah, maid the aunt may was a big shock for me i mean you're right in your analysis of her but i kind of am so used to her being the comic clueless character um, right who's you know a view of old age as being just a total befuddlement <laughs> Though you're you're getting a hell of a culture shock with this Aunt May because I mean at this point Aunt May had had her um, she'd been part of rent strikes she had done all these other things and other earlier runs so like this is less of a leap than that but this is right. the most competent the character's been um, yeah I mean so she does seem to add some wisdom to Peter's life and everything. So that, that is cool. It just, it took me by surprise because um, I was not prepared for it. But as you what talk about of... it, as I think back on it, um, she played a, a good role and it really, it makes sense. Peter Parker's somewhat of a genius. You wouldn't think his, his aunt is an idiot. 
Right. But I'm just so used to that. I mean, it was it was just the Stanley sense of humor. And also, what? I think originally when comics were aimed at kids or they thought they were aimed at kids, mm-hmm. they kind of wanted to make fun of the adult characters in people's lives. So it's the adults in his life were J. Jonah Jameson and his befuddled Aunt May and that sort of thing. And between this Aunt May and this Ezekiel kind of mystic character, I'm almost surprised Madame Webb doesn't come up. Uh-huh. <laughs> Did she appear later in, in Straczynski's? You know, I now that I'm saying it, I can't recall. <laughs> it's been years <laughs> since I read most of the runs, so... I don't believe so, but she does show up later. Yeah. She's a weird character. Um... <laughs> Yeah, so I don't know if there's anything else you want to talk about here. I'm going to let you go for a while. Well, no, so I I just, I was focused on Ezekiel. Um, I keep forgetting his name, not Morbius, Moreland. 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 The Moreland. Interest, Moreland yeah. seemed like he could have been more developed. It was interesting that he had his kind of Renfield character. I think that was the name of the human that, that Dracula used as a slave. Um, and there was interesting hints about that and it kind of played a bit towards the end. So I, I liked Moreland as a villain. There was a moment where he punch, punches Spider-Man and Spider-Man says he is stronger than the Hulk and that, that kind of threw me off a bit. What I wonder about with that isn't necessarily that he's actually, like, if he was to punch just, like, a brick wall, he'd be stronger than the Hulk. But I feel like he's able to do more damage because effectively when he's punching Spider-Man, he's grabbing his strength as well. And so, like, it's going to hurt him in a very unique way. Yeah. Oh, I got. I love that page, too, where he effectively activates his Spider-Sense in a way that makes him scurry away like a spider right so there's this scene for those who can't see it that uh when spider-man first swings by near moreland his his spider sense goes off in such an extreme way that he just has a primordial urge to go hide and scurry away like the spider has sensed its predator that it can't defeat um and that gives a lot of weight to the idea of the spider, uh, what did they call it, uh, totem or whatever that powers him. Mm-hmm. And, and the idea that, so the whole existence of Moreland kind of proves what Ezekiel's saying. So it, it, it also leaves one with a feeling that you want Ezekiel to come back to help Spider-Man explore the true nature of his power. So it is yeah. a little bit of a retcon, you know, it's kind of it doesn't really change anything, but it also but it does change what you might think of Spider-Man. Like it, it puts him yeah. on a more spiritual level in terms of his powers. A more it opens doors for storytelling. Yeah. Which could be irritating. I mean, sometimes you like the fact that they're based in pseudoscience fiction rather than um, mysticism. You know, I I think, I mean, I've heard of parts where they try to, like, rework the powers or do something like that. Like, 
uh, recently Dan Slott's gone back and kind of done a reworking of the Fantastic Four and how they got their powers and whatnot. And there's universally been a pretty violent reaction against that story. I've heard a lot of opinions about this, and I don't think I've ever heard anyone mention anything negative about this. And I, I think it's not just that it's opening mystic doors, but it's the way the story portrays it. Like it does, It's so keen because it doesn't betray anything before this right right it just opens doors moving forward with a new yeah. realization yeah, no it is kind of brilliant yeah so and th- there's scenes you know there's the scene where he's teaching at school and one of the kids becomes one of those shooters who wants to get revenge on everybody at school and that yeah. left me and that left a bad taste in my mouth for some reason i can't quite say why but well what's hard about that issue is that it's tackling school shootings which keep in mind this is just months before 9-11 so that was the hottest issue of the day right um and it's kind of a b story yeah. in that issue because they're dealing so much with the mr physical and whatnot the school shooting just kind of takes place in a few pages and spider-man asks this kid to help him out with some smoke and then when he's tackling the school shooter like it looks so heroic it's so colorful yeah. and whatnot and then if you go to the next page he's like holding a kid ready for a beatdown and it there's a weird dissonance between the art and the story there that i do i think it's uncomfortable for a reason or it's uncomfortable to pretty much everyone who reads yeah. it i believe and I don't know. The issue of someone who is so bullied at school that they basically go insane and decide to kill everybody, uh, that is really a huge story in a way. And it, it kind of is weird to have it in the middle of this other story. And then we just move on. Yeah. It's kind of, again, maybe that's why I, I pushed back against the trope of this incredibly tough high school kind of inner city high school kind of trope yeah if anything the story's a stumble it's that especially when they play it for laughs as the science teacher's just leaving yeah Yeah. that i quit that's it i've had it with this place but yeah i guess that just left me kind of that distracted me and it depressed me and so anyway it was just kind of a weird thing to because I think overall Straczynski's doing a good job of making a big kind of mythic story about heroism and stuff. and But this part of it leaves us a little empty. Um, it kind of reminds me of the fact that lately I've been less excited to read superhero stories because they're stories about people who beat people up in the name of justice. And given what we've seen of you know a lot of police behavior lately, the use of violence as a way to uh, to right wrongs seems rather disheartening at the moment. <laughs> I've had to think about that a lot recently, especially because I've been reading in particular Green Lantern, um, which is space cops. And I know I'm coming up. It's going to take me a little bit to get there. But uh, John's run, there's a point where they allow the use of lethal force. That's kind of this, you know, like yeehaw moment in the book. And I'm like, I, that's not going to read well right now. So, and with stuff around like John's and all that being wrapped up in all this, 
hoopla around Joss Whedon being a less than stellar guy. I don't know. There's a lot of a lot of negativity and hard things that are hard to take right now. So yeah. Right. So when they bring world real world stuff into comics, it just emphasizes to me right now <laughs> that the real world is different than the world of superheroes. If you it almost seems like if you in imbibe superheroes in the wrong way you become one of those bad cops if you're not anyway i i don't want to go on about that but it's sort of well, i think keyed it's in for me during this part well just to go a little further with it i mean there's been that whole discussion that jerry conway's been raising uh because a lot of cops have taken to using the punisher logo in a way that right. he finds disturbing a lot of others have and there's been pushback on that in particular and i think I think it's something we kind of need to think about. Like, I'm really curious what Grant Morrison's going to do with uh, Green Lantern coming back. I'm really curious what Nick Spencer is going to do with Spider-Man once he reveals who Kindred is and actually has to write a story in the moment. Um, I, I'm really curious to see how it goes because I feel like once things, you know, once we get past the stories that were effectively just kind of held back because of COVID... Uh, I feel like there's going to be a shift in superhero storytelling overall to address this kind of new light that's been put on law enforcement, all that with violence. I think, yeah, I think there's something there. Well, a while back we read the uh, the early Frank Miller Daredevil, and there's an ongoing oh, yeah. thing in that where whenever he needs some information, he just goes to this bar where criminals hang out and just beats everyone up. Yeah. And that, you know, if you were to take that seriously and apply it to real life, you know, you end up in a very bad place. <laughs> right. I, Look at uh, these suspicious looking people. Let's beat them up and then we'll we'll find out. We'll stir up the rats and the criminals will come out and we'll solve the crime that way. But uh, speaking of... It doesn't work out very well in real life. <laughs> Speaking of Frank Miller, I started reading Martha Washington, and uh, there's a lot of stuff in there to our situation that feels more present. I'm actually wondering if that book's going to kind of get a new light, you know, put on it because, you know, there's an African American character to cling on to, right. though written by two super white guys. <laughs> but there's a lot of stuff in that book that is ringing right now in an interesting way. Plus, I mean, you know, it's the guy who drew Watchmen, and there's some moments in there that keys to that kind of level of craft. Right. And, uh, I mean, it is, it's interesting to have Peter Parker go back to high school as a teacher. So if they explore mm -hmm. that further in this Straczynski run, that gives me another reason to keep reading, reading this run after we talk about this, these first five issues. And I will say that there are a lot of issues that follow this that deal with the kids in the city and make them a part of the story in a way that actually feels very resonant and really good. There's one issue in particular that we covered on the other podcast, um, Vibes, that's always stuck out to me. Um, and I just feel it's a... It was a cool angle to go with. There is a kind of tragedy in losing the bugle office and not getting your JJJ yes. and all that. <laughs> There's something comforting about the JJJ stuff. But it's funny, after this, I mean, we don't really go back to Peter just 
being in his normal Daily Bugle job. I mean, he's worked at the Daily Bugle since, but it's in a different capacity. And so, I mean, this really this really uh, kind of broke a mold for Spider-Man that he's never returned from. Yeah, so, I mean, beyond that, it's kind of a simple plot. Uh, yeah. Uh, Ezekiel tries to help Peter hide. So he sees Peter as a, f- uh, a, co- uh, a fellow traveler or whatever. So I want to help you out. I'm rich. I will help you hide from this thing. And Peter says, I don't hide from enemies who are going to hurt other people. And I guess that kind of tips the scales for Ezekiel and eventually makes him try to help Peter in his battle against Morlin. And they fight together against Morlin and Ezekiel seems to get killed, <laughs> but is not at all killed. Um, and then, uh, and then Peter kind of figures out a way to redouble his radioactiveness which he has somehow figured out will poison Moreland and Moreland won't be able to steal his power. Right. Of that. I didn't catch how Peter figured that out. And maybe that's so, not important. Well, no, it is. I think it's actually super important because that's where the Peter comes in versus the Spider-Man. So basically Moreland is feeding off the natural energy. The Because what, what tips Peter off is at one point Ezekiel talks about how... The way Spider-Man got cut in isn't pure. And Peter thinks, you know, I've never been pure anything. Right. But he realizes all these other totem characters, because he's he's relied on his spider powers so much, but he goes back to that radiation bit and realizes, like, that's not really supposed to be there. Be it how I got my powers, be it not, it's going to hurt this guy. Because he's looking at, um, because he has a little bit uh, to check out. And so he's checking out his blood. He's kind of checking out, you know, what's going to work. Because he get yeah, there it is. Uh, Ezekiel gives him that one oh, that blood drop, drop of that his he's blood. able right. to examine. That's the turning point. Yeah. So that's pretty clever, that, that one drop of and, his blood. And so by dosing himself with the radiation, instead of Marlon being able to feed off of him, he's essentially feeding him poison. Right, and so that's how he's able to beat him. It's a very clever turnaround. It's and after two issues of him being beaten, like when he when he has the chest torn up and all that, you know things are serious. Like, um, this is a pretty brutal fight for Spider-Man. There's few times where he's as physically taxed. I mean, I can think of like Maximum Carnage and other points, but it's notable. It's it's a new level of what has always made Spider-Man good that that he has pro- health problems and gets injured, gets his arm broken, things like that. Um, and it is the the fact that it it's sort of confirming, it's sort of combining taking this spider totem idea and meshing it with the radioactive idea. And saying, well, that makes that sort of, if the radioactivity maybe was just an accident and the spider was just there to turn him into the spider totem power guy, um, but then radioactivity got in the way (laughs) and killed the spider, 
but then it turns out to be a strength for him. Well, and what's really cool about that too, from a narrative standpoint, is that this this bit that we're focusing on the question of you know the radiation the spider mm-hmm. and the powers becomes not just a curiosity that's fun to consider it becomes part of the story and so it all builds and concludes which i think is why you know this all comes together and so it's just really clever story writing and it's very jms right yeah and you know what happened to me actually is at one point i just read this last issue by itself before i read all the others okay i sort of feel like and maybe that's why i asked why if jms had written many comics before this i feel like he's becoming we're watching him become a better writer issue by issue in terms of comics drama and so this fifth issue just by itself, even if you don't really know what's going on, is incredible. Has incredible rhythm and pace to it that um, is incredibly appealing. At least it I was mean, for me when I accidentally read it by itself. I mean, I think it's a great issue. But if you go back to and read that first issue by itself, like it's a really compelling comic, and there's like no action in it. Well, see, I. I found the first issue, it felt like he was slowly warming up to his subject, you know, as if he yeah. had never, as if, you know, the, as if it were for a new reader, I guess, in a way. Well, it was. I guess. I mean, so we, you know, we have a lot of Peter Parker swinging around and thinking about how he's feeling and a lot of narrative boxes and. I can see why it's all set up, but it, it doesn't have the. To me, it's it's clunkier comic book writing and the. Well, and I think part of the reason it's clunkier. And there's a lot of reliance on the narration boxes. This is the one issue in his run where he really has to contend with other people's writing that came right before it. And so they know it's going to be a lot of new people coming on, and so they have to kind of establish what was in the status quo so i think that's why there's this building for him to break down here is just to have the caption boxes and give us something visual to look at while they're just kind of diatribing i don't know for me personally the first issue took halfway through before i sort of started to get into it okay Um, but you know and I, i do think that um I have a, it's kind of a personal problem or maybe, you know, where I come from as a reader. At some point, uh, these caption boxes took over from thought balloons, thought bubbles. Mm-hmm. And then they became, well, like in um, in uh, Watchmen, they were this great way to do overlapping narrative. And then a lot of other, after Watchmen, most writers used them to both take the place of the thought bubbles and to create overlapping narratives. But so throughout, especially in this first issue, we have, we have this sort of ongoing narration by Peter, but it's not always in the same moment okay. as the action in the picture, right? I mean, it's almost like P- 
Peter is looking back at his life and narrating it. Like it's written right. sometime in the future. and he's Well, he's seeing flashes of the past as he's walking around the and school it, and whatnot. To me, it becomes a, a... It often wobbles over a line of becoming distracting and confusing. Whereas back when you had to use the thought bubbles, they were your actual thoughts you were having at the moment that something was happening, at least when they were done right. Well, and this is around 2001 that's around the time quesada laid down this law of like no more thought bubbles oh did he okay which is the dumbest comic books have so many tools unique to comic books why take away one of them so in any case i mean and often i will like the use of captions to give instead of thought bubbles but or as part of a overlapping narratives but i felt I, I mean, I'm just looking for things to pick on. <laughs> this is a very good comic or graphic novel, if you want, um, arc. But, but I, I felt like it was a bit of a, a crutch where, where Straczynski could just write this other story and not be as involved in the moment of, the, of what was going on. I don't know. I, I'm being picky Lots of other writers do this too, and he probably did it better than a lot of other writers. But it's still kind of a, a format that I think that uh, can kind of undo the immediacy of comics a little bit. Maybe. I mean, I also feel like Straczynski's pulling to put more on a page than other writers. And so, like, I mean... I think breaking it up between those boxes and dialogue when pertinent is maybe better than like what you get with Claremont with just like these long speech bubbles that don't need to go on so long or whatever. It may not be a master stroke, but I think it's a step above. Right. And I think that's why so many people adopted, adapted it. It was a, a better way to kind of fill in details than than the old way of having people describe what they're doing or something or describe what someone else is doing in their thought bubbles. <laughs> yeah. Were there any other smaller moments, I guess, that kind of stuck out to you? I don't know. You know, at the end, I, I mean, I guess I've already kind of referred to it. Uh, what's his side? What's Moreland's sidekick named Dexter or something? I, I liked that, I really liked that, and this is a big spoiler now for someone who wants to read the, read the ending of this without me spoiling it. I like that uh, after Spider-Man has pretty much defeated Morlin and is trying to figure out what to do, um, that another of Morlin's victims, his sidekick Dexter, comes and does the final blow. Mm-hmm. Um it does work both ways, good and bad, because it also gives the hero an out to not have to become a killer. But the problem well, is, if he doesn't kill Morlin, there's no prison that can hold Morlin. There's no. Morlin has been doing this for hundreds of years. He'll be able to do it for hundreds of more years. Yeah, so this is a. This is an interesting conundrum, especially with pushing for Spider Man does not kill. Um, he, but he kind of allows it here, yeah. though, though we're saying he allows it, though, in the text at this point, 
he is wiped. He has about nothing left in the tank. How far, yeah, here it is. How, how far are you prepared to go? And then this guy sneaks in and shoots him. And he's like, well, you know. Um, and he makes a point of actually letting Dexter go. Right. And he also, um, where is it? I mean, he's basically like, now I don't have, um, now I don't have to know what I re- really would have done if it was up to me. Right. And it's not so, what I wanted. No, that's not true. It is what I wanted, meaning the killing of Morley. Um, but at the end, would I have done it? Right. I'll never know. And and I'll always suspect the worst. But what is the worst? I mean, what is in in the case of something like this? Maybe I, before I was you know complaining about the use of violence, but they've set it up so that. Well, and this is not your average bad guy or anything like this is a seemingly unstoppable force right. this is spider-man beating firebrand this is spider-man dealing with a threat beyond his right. means like this is something else so There's i mean that. it does beg the question can you really kill this creature so it would be easy to bring him back <laughs> if yeah, the creature he right comes back so. yeah he comes back so and I gotta say, as I'm I'm flipping through this artwork as we're talking about it, I mean, JRJR tops himself. He's been doing well in all five issues, but he tops himself in this big confrontation. And there's so much detail going on, you know, in the backgrounds and everything. We don't we don't see many modern artists uh, put this level of effort into every panel. And I I think part of the reason Spider Man. Like, the reason it rings for Spider-Man to let this creature die is when I think about, like, okay, Superman doesn't kill either. But the reason he doesn't kill is because he has the ability, he has the power to do better. If he doesn't do better, he's not setting an example, he's not doing anything uh, of note. Superman could grab Morlin and fly him to some deserted planet where he can't hurt anybody. Peter right. Parker doesn't and, have that level. I mean, I guess he could have contacted Reed Richards and they could have sent him to the negative zone or something. Well, yeah, but uh, but beyond that, like the reason Spider-Man normally doesn't kill is the idea that like he's stronger, he can do better. Right. He's being, being responsible. It's that responsibility. Yeah. But at this point, this is beyond him he's fighting for survival at this point it's kill or be killed in a way that it normally isn't with him mm-hmm. it's not like he's fighting the green goblin where they're roughly equal and he wouldn't bring himself to that right. level but i mean this is not a human and that's another thing too is spider-man's usually pretty okay with letting non-human entities bite it right <laughs> i mean this is basically like killing dracula i mean right like this is a malevolent force from beyond this isn't a human life that should be considered so and so i don't think there's like there is something of a morality here but i just feel like it just doesn't ring too much to let it pass 
Does your copy tell you who the colorist was? Because my digital copies don't mention the colorist. And the coloring is actually really good for 2001 also. Dan Kemp and Avalon Studios. Hmm. Well, hats off to Dan Kemp. Not a name I know. But like, look at if you look at this panel I'm showing right now, there's just not only is the choice of colors really nice, but there's subtle shadings like in the grass here and in the sky that are done just right um, that a lot of other colorists kind of do too much of or too little. Yeah. This is an era when Marvel licensed out a lot of coloring to like studios. Right. Or maybe there's a principal, but uh, you know, there's other people in like special technologies that would go into it. And I think the coloring is generally better around this era than right. even some stuff we get now. I think the, yeah, it probably took more effort back then. Photoshop was more primitive and <clears throat> that's why you had people in studios and, and the computers were more expensive that could handle this kind of work. Well, and a lot of people had specialized programs that weren't Photoshop that would like go through and do this kind of work. And so you needed specialized people. And that's why it was a studio doing it. Cause you had, you know, people who weren't necessarily artists, but like software engineers helping with. Right. You had to have the intersection yeah. of the artists and the software engineers. Anyway, beautiful comic. I, I particularly just love this last issue. Yeah. Which leads into another big issue which is the second time aunt may finds out peter parker's spider-man right <laughs> they do leave nothing to the imagination we see that ezekiel is fine and drives off smiling mm -hmm. but saying there are people to help so that also makes him interesting there's something a bit sinister about him. I mean, just the way he appeared to Peter Parker and stuff that I could easily imagine him going over some kind of edge and becoming a villain as opposed to a hero. Well, that's the cool thing. Is there echoing when we first were introduced to Peter who could have easily been a villain if you take things in a certain way? So. Well, and I guess you have on there, you can say that. Um, that scene about the kid who goes over the edge and starts shooting people up at school is a bit like a young Peter Parker who was bullied and stuff, or, or at least Straczynski wants us to make that connection. It could have, but we don't get enough backstory to really make that kind of connection in any meaningful way. There, there's one scene that happens earlier. Is We're at the literal last page now. Um, in the third issue of this, where Peter Parker and Ezekiel talk over... A pizza basically and i think it's one of the most memorable scenes in a spider-man comic or any comic and i was wondering if any of that stuck out to you i'm trying to remember it um and i'm trying to find it on this digital copy as we're talking it's in the yeah the third issue yeah oh yeah so a lot of the conversation is about how like like characters in the marvel universe kind of attract each other captain america attracts all these political types um the x-men you know mutants tend to fight mutants which not really buddy uh 
but Spider-Man takes on all these kind of totem characters that may not realize that they're doing it, but, you know, Dr. Octopus, the Rhino, the Lizard, so on. It kind of glances over, like, you know, the Goblins, Venom, yes, Carnage. Yeah, right. <sighs> uh, but it's still, it, it's a good connection. Yeah. Um, I also like where he says, you know, what if Captain America called himself Super Serum Man? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, he's talking about how, yeah, at this point, how he's made it easier for Merlin to find it by calling himself Spider-Man, because it's a really daft name. Which is funny, because I actually just read The Astonishing X-Men. There's a similar joke in there where, um, I mean, Armor is naming herself, and she says, I choose Armor. And Wolverine looks at her and is like, but on the nose, ain't it? What if I call myself Claws? Like, <laughs> Not that Wolverine is such a great name, but... Well, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, sorry, that's a big side note. No, that's very fair. Um, I just, there's a lot in here. But in that in that pizza conversation, there's one line Ezekiel uh, says that stuck with me that I've actually used a lot um, out of context. But it was that, you know, um, science and math these are the how, but social studies and history and, you know, literature studies, these are the why. You've spent a lot of time wondering how, but do you ever consider why? And I was like, oh, that's so good. And I, you know, this is before I used that line a few times in college. I remember my teachers looking at me like, where did you get that? I was like, oh, Spider-Man comics. <laughs> And then they stop taking you seriously. Well, I mean, I think that's healthy for everyone. Uh, yeah, and I mean, also, I mean, this is just talking, but look where JR goes with the art and all that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's, it's something. Well, even though JR developed this more modern style for him, he also mm -hmm. kept all of the strengths of the traditional comics. Like when you do a conversation scene or a lots of other scenes, you go for a lot of different angles to keep the emotional tension higher and just the visual interest higher. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you see some of these modern people, especially when they're you know doing something with Brian Michael Bendis with it, five panel or six panels of the same shot over and over again i mean we do get that here but <laughs> or have you seen that gag that was invincible a few times where they have like effectively the same frame for dialogue going you know for like nine panels yes. across the page yes. or whatever yeah and that was getting pretty common in the earlier 2000s I, th I think that's gone away a bit right at the moment but it was kind of a thing that people were into doing yeah but it's much harder to do a shot like this where it's overhead Oh yeah, I, can you imagine like switch to a sorry? If you go back to that overhead one, think of the perspective there. I mean, you have like three main lines. Yeah, and this this way he's doing it here, where he starts with the overhead shot and then a close up of Ezekiel's face, and then an even more intense close up of just Ezekiel's eyes. It gives yeah, the an whole extreme conversation yeah. a, a power and meaning. That if you just had a bunch of headshots talking, it would it would all land much flatter. 
Well, and this is uh, somewhere where I believe the language of film kind of came into comics to raise the stakes. Because, I mean, here, yeah, it's it's a bird's eye view to a close-up to an ex- extreme close-up. And I mean... Yeah, this is something that the better comic book artists have been doing, you know, since they... Since maybe the the mid '40s or something, I'm just yeah. guessing, but and they've refined it over time. But it, it's something that is done less, I feel like, in modern comics than it used to be done. So I feel anyway. I feel like JRJR is a nice touchstone between the best of the old and some good things of the new. Oh yeah, he's um, uh, until he became what he is right now, which is just harder for me to look at. But. Well, I feel like. He's a great artist, but he just doesn't fit certain books. And at some point, he fell in love with his stylization so much that it overtakes whatever book he's in. Well, yeah, well, yeah, like the Spider-Man that, I mean, he, you know, broke on and learned on. um, Spider-Man being gone makes sense. Superman being gone is weird. Uh, there's there's a lot of that but like when uh jr jr was on silencer at this point he's not doing the overly large heads i mean the heads are a little more proportionate than your average superhero drawing where the heads are really too small and we're all used to that well i also wonder because i remember seeing some jr jr you know immediately before and immediately after this exact art team and i feel like hannah or is it hannah i don't know i say hannah but okay um I feel like he cleans up some lines for J.R. Jar because I mean, whenever Scott Hanna is not doing the inks for J.R. Jar, J.R.'s art—it's it, more than the shading that doesn't look quite as right. So, so yeah, maybe he's one of those inkers who kind of fixes things a little bit along the way. Yeah, and I don't know if it comes from J.R.'s pencils or from Scott Hanna's inks, but the the use of blacks is really well done so that it um yeah it balances out the page and and things like that which is again kind of an old school idea of how inkers spot the blacks just right so that so that the page is more visually appealing well and this was a comic that very early on like if you look at those eyes on Moreland, and if you can't see it his eyes are red and lit but that is clearly a digital effect um, this is past digital coloring separation that was made pretty standard a um, couple decades before. Uh, this is, or it's just a decade before. Yeah, uh, I think it's just digital a decade coloring. Before. I think must have come in begun around ninety two, ninety three. Okay, yeah. So this is like, this isn't just digital color separation and kind of that sort of thing. Like this is using digital effects to. Right. This is digital art at this point, not just digital color separation. Right. And I feel like that made this really pop back in the day, but it still stands out. Like this still looks incredible. Though, I mean, to the digital color separation, you'll look at those Akira colorings and those still stand out. Yeah, maybe... You know, why I like this coloring is they did use some digital effects, but they were they kept them uh, for just the right moments, like this one where the guy's eyes go all crazy because he's ready for his 
um, big ultraviolence. It's um, bigger there, but I mean, Spider-Man suits in a lot of the scenes in this comic, like, shines in a way you don't see in a lot of books. That makes him look more heroic, which was part of what I was saying with the school shooting bit. Like, he looks super heroic, and a big part of that is, like, how shiny he looks. Shiny? I guess I didn't think of it as shiny. His eyes are a bit shiny there. Well, and like that, uh, like on his shoulder there, or the webs, uh, like... Uh, see, to me, that's being artistic about lighting. He's, there's a flame nearby, so there, um, yeah. there's places where the light is hitting very brightly, so the blue gets very light, or there's actual dabs of yellow and orange. Yeah. Anyway, I mean, I think we're both agreeing it's very good coloring, and it's hard to describe coloring sometimes. But. I'm certainly not uh, of an artistic mind enough to quite... The reason I balked at shiny is because there's um, some colorists who make everything look sort of shiny and overly molded and stuff, and I don't like that coloring. Oh, and there's definitely that kind of coloring, very like... Um... I'm trying to think of their name. The Luna Brothers do a lot of uh, that. Do they like that kind of coloring? Yeah. Anyway, this this is very a tasteful use of digital coloring, um, and it gives it a gives it an a subtly painted look, but it never gets in the way of the black lines or anything like that. Speaking of the art, what did you think of the covers? I hated the covers. All right. I have no doubts about that. Did you like the covers? It's funny. Uh, they're all... Um, oh, gosh. I just lost his name, and I just saw it. Um, Danger Girl Guy. Was it J. Scott Campbell? They were J. Scott Campbell, but before J. Scott Campbell was like he is now. I mean, he was a name at this point. This is post-Danger Girl. Yeah, this Campbell's is post 2000, so this cover was written before the... And with Townsend on the inking. And it looks... It looks very post um, um, Todd McFarlane to me. Well, sure. It's like he's trying to be Todd McFarlane. I don't think J. Scott Campbell is anymore trying to be Scott McFarlane. Uh, Todd yeah, McFarlane. this didn't look like his normal fare. Um, I, I didn't know it was him until I looked it up. But yeah. uh, I don't know. Um, I like some of the covers, but they're not all great. But. So I feel like uh, J.R.J.R. is moving towards the future, but these covers are kind of from the past. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, I would much prefer a J.R.J.R. cover. I mean, I guess, you know, if you're... At one point, I had more tolerance for this kind of style than I do now. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, once they stopped doing this style, then I look back at this style and I don't like it as much, but... It's I'm sure best. it's probably, you know, a pretty good example of of that kind of cover. Obviously, yeah. they, they thought it would help sell it. I mean, that's usually what he's pulled in for, though. Right. It, it, those covers sell. I don't know why. One of the few books I intentionally get a variant cover for is Black Cat. He does the normal covers for Black Cat, but I would oh. rather have anything else. Yeah. Uh so you, you don't even like his modern, more modern style? No, I used to love him when I was 14, 16, you know, reading Danger Girl and all that and whatnot. But 
Yeah. And they, I, if they're putting him on Black Cat, I assume they're wanting him to do some kind of sexy pose. pose oh, it's cheesecake. And yeah. yeah, and that's that at least there's no cheesecake on these covers. This well, one's kind of cool, but there's this weird Spider Man butt there, and I don't know. Oh, yeah. I'm looking at the cover of number 32 for people on the podcast. And I think it's 31 with the white cover, and he's over the. No, it's not that one. Which one is it? Shoot. One of the covers there, he has the Spider Woman pose. 30. Yeah, 30. He has that Spider Woman pose that was so controversial a few years ago, right. but it's the same thing. Yeah, you're right. Good point. No one was upset about it with him. Um, but what I notice is like the way the villains look, and it, it just reminds me of Todd McFarlane so much. Yeah. And it, which you know, I know a lot of people love Todd McFarlane, so I'm sure it helped sell comics. But it just, especially with what's inside, it's just a weird. A weird cover yeah yeah it is uh it's interesting too because that 30 i think it is yeah 30 that's the only really expensive issue out of all this oh really it's because it's the first of you know this new run and all that. first and first appearance of several characters i suppose now yeah. that's that drives value a lot is first appearances right so but the rest of them are i mean they're not dollar bin fodder but they're pretty reasonable so just for my curiosity um were there further appearances of ezekiel and were they Mm -hmm. as equally enjoyable or interesting as this one was i mean i think they're fun i think they're good um whether or not they're quite as good as this yeah they might there might be some diminishing returns there but also i keep in mind though like the rest of the run is pretty darn good but i mean this this is considered one of the classics i mean this is up there with the death of gwen stacy uh nothing moves the juggernaut kid who really? spider-man like this That's is really high up there oh yeah this is undoubtedly considered one of the best spider-man stories of all time so do you think that's based on the fact that everyone's blown away by the sort of well, we don't want to call it a retcon, but the the rethinking of who Spider-Man's powers are, what Spider-Man's powers are from and mean. I mean, for one-fifth of this story, that's the biggest part of it, right? Like, it, it is that, but I think it's also the fact that that plays into, like I said, the conclusion, like, the fun parts of it play into it. I feel like how good a story is sometimes is you could kind of do a rough math equation of like how long the story runs to how well it all comes together and pays off and is pulled through the story. Mm -hmm. And so this is five issues. It's not, you know, one and done. It's not a two issue thing, but every issue, every moment helps continue and build. And arguably the only real bit of fat you could cut off is kind of some of the school stuff that we talked about and then the very beginning though the very beginning is just kind of a consequence of being you know it's issue 30 you know they have to pull from what was before so well and this was heady times at marvel i think where they really were making a comeback and suddenly they were doing really good comics again Uh, a lot i think thanks to joe casada um Oh, questionable. As his edit, you know, his editorial um, 
aside from the fact that he disallowed thought balloons. <laughs> mm-hmm. some of those and may, you know, maybe even the thought balloons thing just helped him shake things up. It's just too bad now it's ossified that you can't do thought balloons or you're uncool. Yeah, well, hopefully that bounces back. Like, I know in certain lines they'll out, like Squirrel Girl or whatever, sure, but not, you know. Do they have thought balloons in Squirrel Girl? I'll have to look back at that. I thought so. Maybe they do. And the, You know, Eric Larson still does thought balloons in Savage Dragon. <laughs> wow. He's on his own little planet. That's why I love him. That's fair. So any, well, do you have any last thoughts about um, these books? Um, I feel like I've said about everything. I just, you know, this is a great run. Check it out. Check out Beyond It. It's good and stuff. And it sounds like rereading it has only affirmed your feelings about it. There hasn't. Yeah. You know, come because you you originally must have read this what when you were twelve or thirteen or something. A little older, but yeah. Yeah. So it could have potentially you know backfired on you to go back to it. Well, I've also revisited. I've revisited this story more so than most throughout the years. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad you got me to read it. Um, you know, to me, it doesn't. I don't know. I enjoyed it. It's very cool. I'm not sure it's as. It has a big effect on me. Um, I guess I have a long way to go to want to want to really become a Spider-Man reader again. <laughs> Would you be curious to read more of this run, though? I am. I will. You know, because it's all there on Marvel Unlimited. Yeah. So it'll be easy. Well, so the next episode will be my pick, and I haven't figured that out yet. Uh-oh. Our, all, all three of our fans will be in great suspense on Twitter and when I figure it out I'll say what's going to be <laughs> sounds good so uh, yeah thanks for this pick very good one glad you liked it forcing me to uh, leave behind my Spider-Man nostalgia that I've been trapped in and this is pretty nostalgic anymore this is two decades old it's ironic that something that is 20 years old for me is non-nostalgic <laughs> Or sad. <laughs>